Hey, if you are a medical professional or a healthcare worker at all of our locations right now, would you have the courage to stand to your feet right now? We would like to honor you. Go ahead and please stand to your feet if you would. Uh, stay standing. Stay standing if you would. And um, if I could. I know you all don't want the attention, but I want to ask you to stay standing because I want to speak to you and I want to pray over you. All right. And so uh, I just want to say to all of you that um, serve us so faithfully in this role. Thank you. I know that the last year and a half has been incredibly challenging. Uh, you all have been uh, put in situations that few of us have. And uh, you, many of you, uh, you've worked really long hours, um, many behind the scenes. I know many of you, I've spoken with many of you, you're exhausted physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, and we just want to say right now, your church family sees you and we love you and we're so grateful. I know that many of you have been caught kind of in the middle of like these swirling debates in society and culture and uh, it's been tugging on you. And right now we just simply wanna come around you and we want to um, encourage you just to stay in it. In fact, later today, be looking on our social media feeds. We uh, wanna just uh, give you a cup of coffee on us. And so just as it's, just, it's, ne it's not a way to repay you, but a way to say thank you and we love you. And so what I wanna do, all of our physical locations right now, if you've got people standing near you, uh, don't physically put your hand on them. Just put your hand kind of up in their direction, sort of like this. This is sort of symbolic of just lifting them up in support and prayer. And uh, we just wanna pray for you right now. Father, we come to you right now and I thank you for the men and women in this room right now that are serving you so faithful, faithfully um, to provide care for those of us who desperately need it. And so God, I thank you for the way that they work really, really long hours. Um, I thank you for uh, the sacrifices that they have made. God, I ask right now that um, you would give them what they need that they could walk out of here today feeling encouraged and hopeful to know that there is a church family that is around them, rallying around them, cheering them on, praying for them. And God, so we, uh, as we're gonna read here in a minute, we wanna pay honor to where honor is due. And so we honor them and we thank them. And uh, we pray that you would uh, guide them, lead them, protect them, fill them up. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. amen. Hey, can we give it up for you one more time? Love you guys so much. Well, um, I just want to uh, uh, greet everybody joining us at our physical locations and those of you online. And uh, we uh, have two weeks left in this series. That's hard to believe, but two weeks left in this series. We've been journeying through uh, in the fall together as we've been walking our way through the New Testament letter called Romans. And if you're just now joining us, uh, let me kind of catch you up to speed. We've been calling the series Recalibrate. And the reason for that is all of us have um, these internal compasses, so to speak, in our lives. That internal compass is what helps us to make sense of this crazy world that we live in. Your internal compass helps you discern what is right from wrong, what you value, what is good and bad, what is just and what is unjust. Uh, and uh, this internal compass could go by a variety of names. We could uh, call it our conscience. We could call it our worldview. 
But, but here's the deal, deal when it comes to our internal compasses. They are being calibrated all the time by the content that we consume, by the people that we spend time with and the thoughts that we think. And we have all been through a massive crisis and just content overload to where our internal compasses are just spinning. And Paul writes this letter um, in a very similar context in Rome. What was going on then is that that church had experienced a massive crisis that had disrupted their lives, that had led to incredible division. And so he takes the time to write this letter to recalibrate their compasses by explaining what the gospel message is and what it isn't. And so we've just been allowing God to use the same content to recalibrate our internal compasses back to what we've said as true north, the voice of Jesus Christ. I want to be formed more and more into his image and his likeness. And already we've established in this letter that we have an enemy who does two things really well. He deceives and he counterfeits. And so he deceives us into exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And then he uh, uh, urges us to counterfeit the real gift for something else. And so um, we have a worship disorder is essentially what we have. Worship is taking the affection that is already in your heart and aiming it towards the one who is worthy of it. And what our enemy does is he says, why don't you worship created things over creator God? And so as we come to chapter 12, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and find chapter 12. We're going to cover a large portion of chapter 12 and much of chapter 13 uh, today. Really, really ambitious. I know uh, I have prepared way too much content than I can adequately cover in our time together. But what else is new? All right, you, you all just kind of, you've just learned to, uh, you know, expect that from me. And so um, what we're doing here is in chapter 12 and 13, this is a massive transition in the letter. Here's what I mean. Paul has just spent the first 11 chapters explaining to us what the gospel message is. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And it is a gift that God gives to us that we do not deserve. But we receive it when we accept him and we repent of our sin and we begin to follow after him. It is this great exchange where Jesus uh, pays the debt of our sin and then he gives us his righteousness to which we've been sort of wrestling to the ground this question over the last couple of weeks. Well, then, like, what's the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the 613 laws in the Old Testament? What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? We could say it this way. Um, uh, does moral behavior matter? Like, I thought Christianity was just a bunch of rules to which we would say, yes, it matters, but not to justify ourselves or earn our salvation. Remember, the law does two things. The law reveals how we were meant to live, meaning if you and everybody that you knew could follow all 10 commandments perfectly every single day, your life and their life would be so much better. But we just can't do it. So the law then is a mirror. The law reveals our sin. It shows us our need for a savior, but we can never earn it on our own. But because God has granted us this grace, now I want to live for him. Now I want to pursue holiness, not because I'm trying to earn anything, but because what Jesus has already done for me. Now, as we come to chapter 12 and 13, here's what Paul's doing. He's just spent 11 chapters exhaustively unpacking what the gospel message is. The last five chapters of the book, he's going to say, here's why it matters in real life. This is what the application of it looks like. And he's going to progressively move out in these like concentric circles, right? So chapter 12, he's going to say, this is what it looks like in the church. Remember who he's writing this to. 
the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome who were deeply divided. He says, this is how it should change your relationships and even us today. And then he goes outside of that and goes, now this is the difference it should make outside the church where you live, work and play with your friends and even your enemies. And then he, like he says, if the gospel message doesn't impact the way that you interact with your enemies, then you have to say, has it really made that much of an impact on my life? It's a gut check question. And then he's going to go one more circle. And this is what he gets into in chapter 13. He's going to say, this is how the gospel message should change the way you think about, talk about, and interact with government. Oh, this is going to be fun. All right. All right. Buckle up. All right. Now I want to give myself plenty of time to unpack chapter 13 because um, that's just so, so important. But I got to lay the groundwork with chapter 12, verse 1. All right. So here he says, starting off verse 1, he says, and so. Some translations say, therefore. You might remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, I said there are four major therefores in the the book of Romans. And if you can get a handle on the therefores, you can really get a handle on the message of Romans. They are all hinges on the book. And this is a massive one. He's essentially saying, and so, dear brothers and sisters. In other words, what we've already learned about the gospel, here's um, how it should look in real life. And then he says, I plead with you to give your bodies, he's talking about our physical bodies that, our soul, that, that houses our souls, to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice he will find acceptable. A living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice. Now, a couple of observations that I want to make before we continue to move on. He uses the word plead. Why do you think he is pleading with us? Well, because the appetites and desires of our flesh are warring against us. In fact, I would say that the one-two punch that takes so many of us out are the motivations of our heart and the desires of our flesh. And he says, I want you to think about your bodies, everything you do with your body. You, you, you feed it, you, you rest it, you exercise it, like anything you can do with your body. He says, I want you to think about that as worship. It is a living and holy sacrifice to God. Not because you're trying to earn anything, but be out of response to what God has already done for you. Um, this talk of physical bodies would have made the Greco-Roman readers really uncomfortable because they had this mindset that said that the body was dirty. And so you should cultivate your mind and your soul, not your body. And Paul kind of interrupts all that and says, no, no, no. Like everything that you do physically, that is an act of worship. And he's using temple terminology here from the Old Testament. And some of you might be familiar with this if you know your Old Testament history, where in the Old Testament, prior to uh, Jesus paying the price for our sins, prior to the cross, you would have to go to the temple on a regular basis and you would have to uh, make an offering to justify yourself, to forgive you, uh, to forgive yourself of your sins. And what that offering looked like was you had to bring a spotless lamb to the temple and shed its blood to cover your sins. Aren't you so thankful that we don't have to do that anymore? Like how weird would that be? Like you're walking through the parking lot, people have got lambs dragged over their shoulders. You're like, how are you doing today? Pretty good, you know. It would get so messy in here if we had to do that. I'm so glad we don't have to do that. Why? Because Jesus shed his blood once and for all, so we don't have to do that anymore. The book of Hebrews talks all about that. There was a second kind of offering, and this was a, uh, a whole burnt offering. And this was the idea that when you would bring that lamb, you brought the best of your livestock, not the worst. In other words, it would have been really tempting to, to go out you know, on Sunday morning and, and pick out the lame one that was going to die anyway. Like, well, I'll, I'll take that one. And he goes, no, no, you bring the best of your best 
to God. And the application of that goes through every area of life. This is the principle undergirding tithing. Like I'm gonna give God my first and my best, not the leftovers. This undergirds my service. This undergirds every act of worship in my life. Could we think about it this way? This is, here's what God is asking. God is not asking for your Venmo. He's asking for your bank account, your password and your pin. And so you, it, he's not asking for your Venmo where he makes a request and you can either accept or deny it. You go, no, God, here's my bank account, my password and my pin. You have, access, you have access to my accounts whenever you want and however you want. Why? Because he's the source of the deposits anyway. See, here's the, here's the idea. You wanna to get to this place in your life as you're following after Jesus, where you say, Jesus, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? That is a living and holy sacrifice. And then he says this, he goes, this is truly the way to worship him. Has nothing to do with whether or not you can carry a tune. In fact, the word truly in the Greek is the word logikos. And that's where we get our word logical. In other words, he goes, if the gospel message is really true, if Jesus paid the debt of your sin and he imputed his righteousness to you, then the common sense response to what God has done for us is to give him our everything. And then he says in verse two, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you. In other words, it's not, don't be conformed, be transformed. And the Greek word there is metamorpho. And this is obviously where we get our word for metamorphosis. This is dramatically different than behavior modification. This is dramatically different that I'm going to try to white knuckle good behavior. This is a radical transformation by God's spirit from the inside out. You are becoming a new creation. So this idea of metamorphosis, this is what happens to a caterpillar in a cocoon. Now, I don't know exactly what all goes on. I've never been in there with a caterpillar when this happens, but the caterpillar uh, doesn't just come out with a few modifications. It is a brand new thing. It completely changes into a new thing. Now, what is happening to that caterpillar inside the cocoon? Well, it's not reading flight manuals and it's not working out. No, these enzymes are released that actually break it down. Its body turns into a soup and then it is reconfigured. When it emerges, it comes out with eyes and an antenna and wings. This is the idea. This is the word he uses for you and me as we follow after Jesus. And he goes, let it transform you into a new person by changing the way, not that you behave, not the way that you, uh, not what you believe or not what you live. He goes, by changing the way you think. This is literally where the battle is lost or won, which is why we've kept coming back to this in this series about why content, the content we expose ourselves to is so crucial. See, fuel for your thoughts is the content you consume. So if we were to use that caterpillar in a cocoon metaphor, um, your thought life is the cocoon that you marinate in. You literally become what you think or expose yourself to. So we have to watch that carefully. And then he goes on and he says, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Anytime I have a conversation with somebody about trying to discern God's will for their life, uh, primarily how we want this to work is we want God to give it to us like in a fortune cookie or an email or maybe a, you know, a red phone in a room somewhere. It just rings and we answer it and God says, this is, your will, this is my will for your life. That's not how it happens. How it happens is what is the next step of faith that God is asking me to make? What is the next door that I should walk through? 
and God's plans and purposes for me are good, pleasing, and perfect, which means if I fail, I fail forward. I get up and I keep going. Now, verse three, Paul's gonna shift into motives. And he says this, he goes, because of the privilege and authority that God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think that you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. Real talk, be real. Don't pretend anymore. Don't pose anymore. Just, just authentically be yourself. Uh, ask other people this sobering yet penetrating question that few of us have the courage to ask, but it's always so helpful. You just simply ask this question to your spouse, to your friends, to your coworkers, to the people that you lead. What is it like to be on the other side of me? And then you keep your mouth shut and you listen, even if you don't like what they have to say. This is this idea of honestly evaluating ourselves. And the gospel keeps us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we should because we are sinners saved entirely by God's kindness and grace. However, the gospel also keeps us from thinking too lowly of ourselves than we should because we are saved sinners who are loved and valued by the one whose opinion really matters anyway. Now look what he says in verse four. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. Now he is talking about the gathered church, what we're doing right now. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. There is no such thing as a solo Christian. There is no such thing as just God and me. Now there is a personal element of your faith, but that doesn't mean that your faith is ever meant to be private. We are connected to each other. Why? Because we are on mission together. And as Paul's gonna get into in a minute, we all have been given gifts by God that we all need each other's gifts. We, we don't have all the, you do not have all the gifts. We need other people. Why? Because we are on mission in this world. That we have an enemy who is deceiving and counterfeiting God. We come together uh, to represent the kingdom of God here on earth. We have a mission in front of us and that is to get as many people to Jesus Christ as we possibly can as we are formed and shaped into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So he says this in verse six, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, like don't be ashamed of that. Speak, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So here's what he's saying. The day that you gave your life to Jesus Christ and the spirit of God came into you, God gave you a spiritual gift, likely not just one, he gave you several, to be used to advance his kingdom here on earth. You have been gifted with a spiritual gift. So uh, a gift is something that God grants to you for the advancement of his kingdom. And so you hold on to it loosely and you leverage it wisely for the good of others and for the kingdom of God. So um, um, my top three spiritual gifts, just through diff taking different uh, spiritual gifts inventories, through the affirmation of others, and then just through life experience are uh, wisdom, discernment, teaching and preaching and leadership. Now, here's the thing that I know about all three of those. Um, uh, I, I uh, didn't grow up, I, that I can recall, having any of them. Like I was not a very wise and discerning teenager. 
Like I hated public speaking. I really did. I did not. In fact, that was the one thing that was really keeping me from going into full-time ministry. As a kid, you had to talk every week. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And then I was never really seen necessarily as a leader when I was in high school, kind of growing up. There was a tangible day that I could take you back to whenever I just fully gave my life to God. And I said, God, here am I, like send me. I want to be used by you. It was like a, a switch got flipped and God granted me those gifts. Now, uh, have I had to steward them and grow in them and manage? Yes. But because there was a clear day when I felt like God kind of granted me those gifts, I hold on to them really loosely because I know if he gave them, he can take them away. Now, here's the uh, application for you. Can I just ask those of you who are Christ followers listening to this right now? Are you aware of your spiritual gift? And are you using it? And I just want to encourage you to Find out what your spiritual gift is. If you don't know, there's a number of inventories that we can give you just to kind of help. Those, those have their place. But primarily, I would just simply say this. Uh, uh, what are you naturally good at? What, where are your abilities lie? What are you passionate about? And do other people affirm those things in you? If they do, it is likely a spiritual gift. And then I just want to urge you to use it. And we, uh, we, I want to ask you to use it within your church family. It's not that you can't use those spiritual gifts out in the community and we need you to, but we also want you to, and I want to encourage you to use them within the body of Christ. And here's why. Every single weekend, there is somebody walking through the doors of all of our campuses or joining us online. They are looking for hope and help. And I need you to step up to the plate and exercise your spiritual gift because God has gifted you with something that the rest of us don't necessarily have. Here's what we have a tendency to slip into. It's a very natural progression, but we, I wanna make us aware of it so that way we can work against it, especially when it comes, it doesn't even matter if the church is large or small. We have a tendency to think of the church as a cruise ship rather than a battleship. So it's like a cruise ship where I'm kind of lounging on my recliner and other people are serving me and I'm just kind of coming consuming something when the church really is a battleship because we're on mission. I need you to man your station. It, is, it, is, it, is, it doesn't take um, a rocket scientist to come in and to see everything that we're doing wrong. Like I, I could give you a list. You, all it takes is two eyeballs and a pen and paper to become a critic. And you could walk in here and go, uh, we had to shut down classrooms because there wasn't enough people to serve in kids men and nobody said hi to me in the lobby. Great, we'll see you next weekend, early, right? You can serve in the kids' men and we'll see you out in the lobby to greet other people. <laughs> Be the church you've always wanted to attend. Don't just church hop and shop, all right? Verse nine, oh, it gets better. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. I love that. It says take delight in honoring each other. This is the whole idea of pay honor where honor is due. And honestly, we oftentimes don't do a very good job of that in society. Why? Because we're afraid other people will get a big head. And so we refrain from giving encouragement. And I just want to urge you right now, like, don't do that. Like, just understand that everybody that you will lock eyes with today most likely needs some encouragement in their life because they are discouraged. It's like a deflating balloon. And when you offer encouragement, you are inflating them. Now, oftentimes we're like, well, I, I, I want to make sure that they don't get too big of a head. I want to make sure that they stay humble. That's God's job. God will keep them humble. He will discern the motivations of their heart. Uh, our job is to honor up, down, all around. So can I just say to those of you, when you go pick up your kids and kids, men, if you have kids today, honor the people that just served your kids. Man, just love on them. Just thank them. Just bless their socks off. 
because they are coming and they're uh, using their gifts to actually serve your family. All right, that's just one application of it. Verse 11, he goes, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Man, verse 12 is so powerful. That's so applicable. And then he says this, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them Always be eager to practice hospitality. This is the idea where he says, get your, this is, this is more than just finances, but this is certainly a big application of it. He says, be ready to help them. What's that mean? Well, make sure that you are living uh, below your means so that way when a need presents itself, you have the margin to be the need. And most of us want to be generous. Most of us want to do that, but we're so far in debt. We're living upside down outside of our means that when we see a need, we're not able to do it. And so he says, man, uh, get your finances in order. So that way, when you see a need, you are ready to help and always practice hospitality. One of my favorite definitions of love is this. Love is doing whatever it takes to give to people whatever they need. And one practical way we're trying to do that as a church, and you've already heard about it already today. We've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks. It's just coming along a Shepherd Community Center to offer a good Christmas to families that are in need. But we wanna do so in a way that allows these families to give their kids the Christmas that they deserve with dignity and respect. We don't wanna to offer toxic charity. We don't wanna to try to help and really it ends up hurting. And so that's why we love what Shepherd is doing because they're offering this Christmas store. Here's what we're doing. We're purchasing the inventory and we are stocking the shelves of that Christmas store. So that way families in need can go to the store. They can pick out what they need. They take it home, they wrap it and they can give it to their kids. They can give them a good Christmas while holding their heads up high and doing it with dignity and respect. So we are trying to stock the shelves so that way the store has enough items for Christmas. So, um, Here's where we are right now. We've been talking about this over the last couple of weeks. So far, our church has purchased 633 of the items. As of today, we have 3,267 more that need to be purchased in order to stock the store. Um, I think we can knock that out today. All right, so go ahead. Uh, not right now, because I worked too hard on this message. All right. Uh, take out your phones later today. Text outreach to 87221. Go to the link on the website and get all the information you need. We will collect the physical items here um, at, at our campuses in the bins. Last day to do that is December 5th. I really think we can knock out all the items today. Now, he turns his attention to relationships outside of the church, which then is going to set up our relationship the way that we think about government in chapter 13. All right, look what he says in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know at all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Might I add, even if they don't believe what you believe, they can still see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Mm, ouch. Just in general, how do you think we could give the body of Christ, Christians in general, a grade on that one over the last two years? <laughs> Don't answer out loud. It's an F. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Now, all of that tills up the soil, sets the foundation for what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 13, which is the Christian's relationship with governing authorities. So here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to lay out some guidelines 
for how we should think about, talk about, and interact with government. And might I add, uh, honoring the government when government isn't always honorable. And he's going to show us why. And he's going to show us, is there ever a time to disobey the government? And the answer to that is yes. Or he's going to encapsulate all that. But um, he's going to lead with uh, honor. And he's going to provide the why behind this. So chapter 13, verse 1. You guys with me? Oh, this is going to be so much fun. It's going to be so much fun. My email is going to be filled this week. It's going to be great. Everyone, everyone must submit to governing authorities. Hold your applause till later, all right? I know you want to. I know you want to say amen, but just hold your applause. It's going to get better or worse, depending on your perspective. Why? For all authority, even the people that you don't agree with politically, all authority comes from where? God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. To which you would say, what? <laughs> like, are you serious? Like, do you know, like those, the, the men and women that serve in those political offices, do you know what they stand for? Do you know the policies they're trying to, to push through? How could God place them there? This is this whole idea, this word called the sovereignty of God. I'm reminded of one of my favorite verses in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter four, verse 17. Check this out. It says the most high, that's God, rules over the kingdoms of the world. Check this out. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. This is the idea that God rules with his feet up. He is not wringing his hands over who got into political office. He is not worried about the judges that get voted onto the Supreme Court. But you might say, well, how could God place somebody in a position of authority whose policies and values run counter to his word? Read the Old Testament. He did it all the time. Primarily, all of those earthly rulers have an expiration date. Their kingdoms come, their kingdoms go. God's kingdom reigns forever. And God is so powerful and so sovereign that he can work even through very ungodly leaders. And so we calm down on the inside and we recognize God is, when we freak out, that is an assault on the sovereignty of God. Verse two. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. That is so sobering, especially after the last two years. Now he's going to get real practical. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about um, laws, not the abuse of the laws, but he's talking about laws that protect us all, right? Like a civil society. And we're all very grateful for that. So like, let let me just uh, kind of apply this to everyday life. Um, Have you ever been, hypothetically speaking, going over the speed limit? All right. And uh, you're flying down the interstate and all of a sudden, maybe you just you just didn't even realize how fast you're going. And you look in the rearview mirror and you see red and blue lights. What happens? Oh, man, if you're anything like me and this hasn't happened to me in like a really long time. But uh, (laughs) father, forgive me, I've just sinned. All right. So um, but what happens? Your your hearts are beating out of your chest. Your hands immediately go to 10 and 2 as if that matters. Right. And like adrenaline's pumping, all you hit the brakes, 
you know, and then, then the, the uh, officer like flies around you and is going, going to somewhere else, some other emergency. And then what happens? Oh, like your heart rate comes down, you speed back up. And if you're, if you're anything like me, you start complaining, right? Like, why are all these police officers out today? To which my wife ends up saying very calmly and very rationally and very annoyingly, well, if you go the speed limit, you wouldn't have to worry about how many police are out today. I hate it when she's right, all right? So that's what he's talking about. Then he says this, would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do, do what is right. They will honor you. He's just talking about upholding the laws, not, not, the, not the misuse of the laws, upholding them. And he goes, and they will honor you. Verse four, the authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid. If you're breaking the law, of course, you should expect the consequences. But they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Here is a very practical takeaway. We don't just go the speed limit to avoid getting a ticket. We go the speed limit to keep a clear conscience before God. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, this isn't the only time that Paul tells us to submit to imperfect authorities as we are submitting to God. He would tell children, children, obey your parents as imperfect as they are, because when you do, you are submitting to God. Now, I just want to recognize maybe a tension within these verses that we just read, because obviously in the media right now, the media has a tendency to highlight uh, when um, law enforcement act in very um, unhonorable ways. And we want to grieve that. We want to speak out against it in all of its forms. And yet we don't say this enough. We want to recognize that the vast majority of our law enforcement are good men and women who are doing an incredible job, making an enormous sacrifice for us, putting their lives on the line. Many of you serve our church so well. And listen, I know that as a pastor, I know what it feels like to be judged by the worst of your profession. Like that happens to me like every week. And so we don't want to do that to those who serve in law enforcement. We want to thank you. We want to honor you. We're so grateful for you. That's what he's getting at. Now, verse six, pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. Oh no, you didn't, Paul. Like that's not going to end up on any coffee mug. Like our next uh, merch that we release, that, that verse isn't going on the back of our t-shirts, all right? But it's there, it's there. Well, why, like, why, why should we do that, Paul? Well, he says so in verse six. This goes back to like a civil society. He goes, they are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So he's basically talking about um, roads and bridges and emergency services that obviously require resources to fund. And he says, we should pay those taxes and be grateful for the services provided. I know this is a really, really hard teaching, but I didn't write it. I'm just delivering the mail. <laughs> and at this point, you might be wondering, because I wonder this as I study this passage, why is this in Romans? I guess I'm reading this, I'm like, why is this here? Because Paul's been, like, what does this have to do with the gospel? And what does this have to do with the conflict that was happening in the church at Rome? This just kind of seems so random. And what I want to point out to you is that this is part of the application of what he just walked us through in chapter 12. Remember what he said in verses 17 and 18. He goes, live in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable to which we could insert even if they are not. In verse 19, he says, don't get revenge. Leave that to God. Another very practical reason why many scholars believe that Paul included this in his letter 
is because he fully expected the Caesar in Rome to intercept the mail and read this letter before it got to the church in Rome. And he wanted to clearly communicate that his intentions was not to overthrow the Roman government. Here's why. Many religious philosophies of the world during that time and then throughout history have seen it as their duty to uh, overthrow the government and replace it with leaders of their religion. Lots of examples of this. Many Jews during Jesus' time would have felt that way. They believed that God wanted them to overthrow the Roman government and establish a kingdom. They were called zealots. And this is, in fact, Jesus had one of them as a disciple, Simon the Zealot. And Jesus would often say, hey, man, I've not come to establish an earthly kingdom. I've come to advance the kingdom of God here on earth. Uh, Islam, in many places around the world, not all, but in some places throughout history, this would be their intention to overthrow the government. We've actually seen an example of that here recently in Afghanistan. And so what Paul's saying here is like, hey, listen, our role is not to overthrow human governments. Um, As Christ followers, pray for and influence and serve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, um, speak prophetically to rulers and those in authority and rebuke them for unrighteousness and warn them of God's coming judgment like John the Baptist did with Herod, you bet. And as Christ followers, we pray for Jesus to get a hold of the hearts of those who govern, not try to enforce a quote-unquote Christian government. And there is a very real danger that often happens when well-meaning Christians attempt to nationalize their faith. What I want to point out to you is that throughout history, this has never worked. It always goes bad. In fact, let me just nerd out with you for a minute. Scholar John Stott points out four ways in which the Christ followers can interact with government. The first, if you're taking notes, would just simply be this, a theocracy. And a theocracy means uh, the church controls the state. And that always goes bad. The second would be uh, Erastinianism. This is where the state controls the church. So think China or Russia. That's even worse. Uh, The third is uh, Constantinianism, kind of named after the Roman emperor Constantine. And this would be a compromise in which the state favors the church. So the church makes accommodations with the state in order to preserve favored status. And almost what always happens, instead of the church influencing the state, the state overly influences the church, waters down the gospel, parts of old Europe were this way, it never goes good. Here's the fourth way. John Stott says partnership. That's where the church and the state recognize that each have distinct God-given responsibilities and they encourage and collaborate with each other in fulfilling these roles within society. Stott would say partnership most aligns with Romans 13. Paul wants the Caesar in Rome to know that when he comes, he comes as a representative of Jesus, not a political agitator. And to the Roman Christians, their role is to influence, not overthrow. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, the the question that you might have. And so if I can, let me just try to save you an email. Some of you are sitting here thinking, okay, I hear all that, but how in the world can I honor or submit to a a political leader who is leading in the exact opposite direction of God's word? And for many of us, we feel that if we see that, it gives us the green light then to revolt, protest, and even curse them. That it gives us the green light to post really mean and unkind things on social media. So what I want to point out here 
is that when Paul writes Romans 13, none of the governing authorities in Rome at the time were Christian. In fact, they were unfriendly towards the church at best, and they were openly hostile towards the church at worst. Paul would not have approved or endorsed the vast majority of who they were and what they did. And if there would have been a democratic collection in Rome, which there was not, he wouldn't have voted for any of them. And yet he still writes Romans 13 and says that we should submit to and honor them. I mean, if we, we should just take a look at some of the political leaders in Rome during the time. They make, you, you could think whatever you want about some of our political leaders. They make our leaders look like angels. In fact, the Caesar at the time, Paul writes Romans 13, was a guy named Caligula. And let's just look at this laundry list of uh, this Boy Scout, all right? Here's who he was. He had his mom and his brothers killed to make sure they never challenged his right to the throne. He openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He would often cross-dress in public. He installed his favorite horse as a senator and then promoted him later to consul. How does that even work? All in favor, say aye. All opposed. <laughs> the, the whole dad joke section down here. He, he, get this. He once got angry at the weather and declared war on Neptune, the Roman god of the sea. And he wasted taxpayers' dollars by ordering soldiers from the Roman army to whip the waves and bring home seashells as plunder from his domain. He had the heads of statues of deities removed and replaced with a bust of himself. Imagine if our political leaders uh, superimposed their face over every statue of Jesus throughout the land. During the gladiator games, he would take random people from the crowds. They thought they were just showing up for a show. And he would throw them into the arena to be attacked by wild animals for entertainment. The point is, he is no Abe Lincoln. Nobody was shouting four more years. It was all hashtag not my Caesar. That's what was happening. <laughs> now, after Claudius, uh, after that, you have uh, Claudius, who was his own special brand of crazy, but he was every bit as cruel. But uh, then right after him, you have a guy named Nero, who, which you've likely heard of. And Nero, when he assumes the throne, and by assumes, there wasn't a democratic election that took place. By assumes, I mean this. His mom killed Claudius in his sleep so her baby boy could be ruler. And your mom just packed you a lunch, all right? <laughs> Nero ends up becoming one of the most sadistic, meanest, hostile rulers against Christians of all time. He is believed to have set fire to the very city that he governed. He's believed that he set fire to Rome and then he stood on his balcony like some sort of tragic opera playing his harp. And he blamed Christians for the fire, crucified hundreds of them as a result. We know that he had a party where he lit up his courtyard by dipping Christians in tar, stipping, stipping them in lanterns and lighting them on fire. One time, this is crazy, he got mad at his pregnant wife and kicked her to death. Afterwards, he felt really bad about it. So he found a boy who looked similar to her. He castrated him and married the boy and called him by his wife's name. It is within that context of a dumpster fire of government that Paul writes Romans 13. Submit to governing authorities and honor them. Why? Because when you submit to them, you are acknowledging your trust in the sovereignty of God who rules over kings and kingdoms and appoints them to whomever he wishes. They are not really in control. God is. 
And when you submit to them, you are placing your trust in him. Here's what that practically means. You don't freak out about who's in office. Now, are you maybe upset about it, sad about it? Sure, sure. But you don't freak out about it. You don't offer a response that is fearful, angry, or anxious. Because when you do, that is an assault on the sovereignty of God. Now, here's the question. Is there ever a time for us to disobey? You bet there is. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says this, the Bible gives a very clear basis for civil disobedience, an emphasis on civil. Namely, if the state commands what God forbids or if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. Civil disobedience does not look like fear, anger, or anxiety. Here's, here's just a good gut check. Before you post or repost anything politically online, ask yourself, does this cause fear, anger, or anxiety? If it does, refrain. How do you exercise civil disobedience? How do you exercise civil disobedience? Uh, um, read all about Daniel in Babylon. He did it so well. Daniel in Babylon, there were moments when he submitted to the ungodly direction of Nebuchadnezzar. And there are other moments when he calmly and respectfully defied it. Now, here's what I want to close with. You have to wonder, as Paul writes Romans 13, if he's thinking about Matthew 22. And in Matthew 22, some of you might recall that Jesus gets into an argument with the Pharisees about whether or not they should pay taxes. And uh, it was a trap. As usual, the question that they pose to Jesus. So they come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, should, should we pay taxes? Now, here's the dilemma that he's in and how he answers. Uh, in those days, taxes uh, were paid to Rome, but Rome was oppressing the Jews and the Jewish Christians. In fact, the taxes that you gave to Rome were often used to uh, fund the Caesar's lavish lifestyle and to uh, fund the crucifixions that were taking place. So you get the dilemma that Jesus is in. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, then they could, they could accuse him of um, indirectly um, oppressing uh, the Jews and the Christians. And then the Jewish zealots will get really angry and they'll want to kill him. If Jesus says no, then the Romans can say, well, you're just trying to incite a riot, a riot. you're a revolutionary, we can kill you too. So Jesus is in a real bind with what he answers. And I love what Jesus does, as he so often does. He Jesus jukes them. <laughs> he just totally crosses them over and breaks their ankles. And Jesus simply says this, whose image is on the coin? And I go, Caesar's. And he goes, okay, give Caesar what is Caesar's. You give to God what is God's. And at this, it says they marveled. Well, what is he saying there? This is a very subtle teaching that reinforces our trust in a sovereign God and it undermines the government's claim on our lives. And basically it's this, the coin has Caesar's image on it, but God's image is stamped on you. So you give to Caesar what is Caesar's because his image is on the coin, but you give God your everything. Remember, living in holy sacrifice because his image is stamped on you, which means that you never obey Caesar in a way that would cause you to disobey God, yet uh, you never disobey God in a, but in a way that disobey God, yet you refrain from defying Caesar in a way that dishonors God because he is ultimately in control. You losing it and going off on social media does not reinforce anyone's trust in God. <laughs> Aren't you so thankful this message came just in time for Thanksgiving, all right? Now, <laughs> 
Let me finish up the last three verses, 11 through 13. This is all the more urgent for you know how late it is. Time is running out. In other words, eternity is racing at us. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. On down in verse 14, he would say this, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, any subject that comes up around the Thanksgiving table, including politics, they should see Jesus in you. So here's the deal that I wanna end with. Uh, right now, here's the, the question I want you to contemplate. You might be a decent human being. You might be an upstanding citizen. You might treat your friends and your enemies with respect. You don't seek revenge. You intentionally go five miles under the speed limit. You avoid saying inflammatory things on Facebook and you follow the letter of the laws of the land, except for that one time when you remove the tag off your mattress. But other than that, all right, here's the sobering reality. You can do all that and still die and face a Christless eternity. Why? because you never actually gave God what was God's, you. And today I wanna to give you that opportunity. Caesar's image may be stamped on your coin, but God has his image stamped on you. You were made by God and for God and your soul will ultimately be restless until you give yourself completely to God. And one day we will stand before his throne and give an account of the life that we lived. The question is, will you be ready? And you can be ready right now, today. And so what I wanna do across all of our campuses, bow your head, close your eyes. I wanna lead you just through a, a prayer here. And I just want to, you to claim this prayer for you, for yourself, if you are ready to receive this. Maybe if you've drifted, if you've allowed your internal compass to, um, be totally uh, directed towards um, other things. You've totally taken your eyes off the kingdom of God, place too much emphasis on the kingdom of men. Right now we just come to God. We say, God, I confess my sins to you. And I acknowledge that Caesar's image may be stamped on my coin, but your image is stamped on me. And I wanna live for your kingdom, not be too wrapped up in this passing earthly kingdom. So Father, today, I acknowledge my sin. I repent of my sin. I place my trust in you, King Jesus. Thank you for paying the debt of my sin and giving me your righteousness into my account. And so now God, today, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? So Father, I received you. I accept you. I wanna follow you throughout every day of my life. Place my trust in you, not only as Savior, but as Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.